Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Anhang Room at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I think if this novel was rewritten as a cozy mystery, it should be titled A Turn for the Worst. Across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor, the branch head at the Louis Riel Library, and my favorite bird is the red-winged blackbird. Across the table from me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I, for one, found this book a real page turn. <laughs> I didn't realize we would both have turn times, uh, but... And that also... Was, that was I, an unexpected yeah. turn. <laughs> I had two weeks, and that's the best thing I could come up with. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about red-winged blackbirds. Fair enough. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engine... And you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you, and we'd love to hear from you. Be sure to actually send us a message rather than carrying it around with you as you roam all over the world. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. So, to start the episode off, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. How are you guys doing? I'm a little disoriented because we're not in our normal room, mm. uh, the Carol Shields Auditorium, because this is a very busy place today. We have a, a group receiving first aid training in one room, and there is a group of youth services staff doing what they do. Unclear what they do. They are getting ready for summer reading, of course. We can add that part out. Of course we know what they do. <laughs> yeah, this room is much brighter and uh, less moody than the Carol Shields room. Mm-hmm. I was also just going to mention that it's it's no it's no secret that we record our podcast and Dennis edits it. So what you're listening to is a recorded thing. But coming up towards the end of June, there are two events that are live that I would just like to mention. One is our Tales at Night program, which uh, if you've never been to it, it is a program where you would go to a popular drinking establishment called the Goodwill Social Club, which is located at 625 Portage Avenue. It's happening on June 28th, 7.30 p.m. And if you come at that time, you will see a few library staff take the stage and read stories to you as if you were toddlers. But they're not stories for children. They're stories for adults. So there are sometimes violence, sometimes humor, sometimes sexual content. But it's all in good fun. And uh, we people enjoy drinks. So if you're interested in something like that, if you're into fun, I'd recommend that. And just the day before that, if you're more of a stay-at-home kind of person, there's another program that I believe we're calling Next Page Live that Toby and I and a couple other people are involved in. It's going to be like a Zoom call, which we are all familiar with, with the uh, pandemic. But instead of talking to your relatives or coworkers, you will be talking, you won't be talking at all. You'll be tuning in. You will be muted because... What you'll hear is from a few librarians, myself, Toby, and Danielle from Reader Services, and we will tell you what we think would be good reads to read on your upcoming vacation time. And, and you don't have to live in Winnipeg to, you don't have to, to live come. In Winnipeg. That's the beauty of Zoom. Yeah. You mm-hmm. could be in Greenland. 
Yeah, I guess we can link to the program registration page like on our website. Yes, that's right. Because that's how you would get the link is if you register, then they will send out a link. So those are just two things I wanted to mention. And that one is on June 27th at 12 noon. And they're both free. They're both free and they're both fun. Yes. Free and fun. Yeah. I can't stand either of those things. Why would I <laughs> Just kidding. So that's all I got. Those are good things. Okay. Well, with that, let us jump into the episode. Toby's going to tell us about the author, and then Trevor will give us a summary of the book. Okay, Charlotte McConaughey. There's not a lot of information out there about her, so this is going to be pretty brief and a little disjointed. So she is Australian. She has a master's degree in screenwriting from the Australian Film Television and Radio School. Interestingly, her first books were in the young adult science fiction fantasy genre, and she actually wrote over a dozen of these, but they were only published in Australia. So she really rebranded herself as a writer of more serious literary fiction when she wrote Migrations, which came out in 2020. And even her current website doesn't mention these like other young adult novels. So Migrations was Time Magazine's best book of the year. It was an Amazon.com best fiction book of the year. It was translated into over 20 languages and is currently being adapted to the screen by Claire Foy and Benedict Cumberbatch. And I'm curious if Cumberbatch would play Enos or if he would play Niles. I don't know. Um, and I wanted to read out this quote of hers about Migrations as it mentions Toni Morrison, who we just discussed. So kind of a nice segue. So it says, I wanted to try and engage with the climate crisis in an intimate way. And it's hard to nail down where the book came from, but I had Toni Morrison's words in my head. If there's a book you really want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Her second book of literary fiction, Once There Were Wolves, came out in 2021 and was a New York Times bestseller. And she lives in Sydney with her partner and son. So what do you think? Enos or Niles? Benedict Cumberbatch. I was always pronouncing that Ennis in my head. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe oh. because it's so close to Dennis, and <laughs> I rarely see my name in fair, books. Fair so, enough. Yeah. <laughs> I think if he was playing against type, I could see Cumberbatch being Ennis. But Have you if, seen that cowboy? What's that cowboy movie called? Oh, something about the dog? Power of the Dog. Yeah, I never did see it. Oh, okay. He's kind of against type there. Right. Hmm. But if he was playing type, I could see him being Niles or Niels. Niles. I always think of Niles as a nihilist. That's why I think of him as Niles. But for some reason, I think of Niles, Niels having a blonde, blonde hair. I pictured him as fair as well. But I mean, that, that's easily, that's easily fixed with a little bit of dye or a wig even. What do you think, Dennis? I have no idea. Ah. Do you know who Claire Foy is? Have you heard of her? Would, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was in Women Talking. Oh, was she? I never yeah. saw it. Oh, yeah. She was yeah. also, she also uh, played Neil Armstrong's wife <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in that Ryan Gosling film. But I think most most people may know her as playing the young Queen Elizabeth II yes. in uh, two seasons of The Crown. Hmm. So I guess, yeah, I could see her as Franny. Mm-hmm. I would buy it. Yeah, me too. Do you guys want to hear what this Migrations is all about? I'm Give it to, to us. It. All right, here, here it is. This is the synopsis. The story takes place in the very near future, almost too near, a world where climate change and human activity have resulted in the extinction of most of the Earth's wildlife is a world that feels disturbingly familiar to a reader in 2023. Our protagonist is Franny Lynch, or Franny Stone, if you prefer. She studies birds. She currently has a specific obsession with the Arctic tern. So she's up in Greenland with a plan. Terns have the longest migratory path of any bird, according to Franny. And I guess, of course, according to science. All the way down to the South Pole and then back up again. 
Franny's plan is to somehow convince the fishing boat's captain and crew to take her along and follow this year's migration, which could very well be the very last Arctic turn migration. If they can follow the turns, the turns will, in theory, lead the fishing boat to where the fish are. And so she meets Captain Ennis Malone and his crew of the fishing boat Sagani. They reluctantly agree to this arrangement. And they set out. But terns are not the only creatures who migrate in this story. Franny herself was born with itchy feet, as she calls it, resulting in her never really feeling like she belonged anywhere, which may explain in part why we begin the story with her up in Greenland, desperately trying to band a few turns in stormy weather. Through a combination of repressed memory and careful editing, the reader slowly learns of Franny's past in bits and pieces, her mother leaving at the age of 10, and uh, Franny being sent to live with her paternal grandmother in Australia, her chaotic and whirlwind romance and marriage to Neil, Nile, God, a biology professor who shares her love and interest in birds, an unspeakable tragedy that is alluded to throughout the novel and isn't fully revealed until the end, Franny's stint in prison, and so on and so on. Part adventure, part mystery, part meditation on our planet and our responsibilities towards it. Migrations never stays in one place too long. Before we go forward, I think we should settle on the pronunciation of some of the names. (laughs) Are we going to say Nile? That's how I said it in my head, but... Okay. I was never sure because I don't know what that's spelling and such, but... uh, Were you thinking Neil? I wasn't sure. I'll be honest. The whole time I'm reading it in my mental voice, it was not quite clear. Okay. I'm good with Niall, and I, and I too, was thinking of him as Ennis. Oh, okay. I, it, so, it seemed like Enos to me, but I can... Well, there were two N's, though. Yeah. I and mean, yeah. I, I get the Dennis Ennis thing, And there, there's, there's but... a comic book writer called Garth Ennis. Oh. But that's his last name, so I don't know. So anyway. Yeah. Enos seems a little bit more romantic to me. Enos? <laughs> Even though it Enos. Toby? <laughs> I don't know. Ennis. Uh, okay, yeah. that's going to take... Oh, Pius Malone. <laughs> also, uh, a weird name for an American. Yeah, I'm, I would I expect that from... And say Ennis. Yeah. Ennis. Penis. 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 Come on Enos. now, Toby. Ennis. Okay. We're recording in the okay. morning, which probably explains why Toby is extra kind of uh, on... Often we record in the afternoon. That's the other thing that's disorienting me, hmm. is that we're in a different room, different time of day. Yeah. Okay. Niall okay, what about Anik? Yeah, I would say Anik. Sure. Anik, and then Leah, Malachi, Day, kind of minor characters. So. Basil or Basil? <laughs> Basil. <laughs> Basil. Because he's faulty. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the time we have this month, everybody. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed migrations as much as we did. Now that we've got that out of the way, how did you guys find the book? Well, before you shit all over this book. Um, <laughs> like an Arctic turn. <laughs> just like an Arctic turn. <laughs> Books like this are, are like catnip for me. Um, this is literary fiction by a white woman. I mean, look at this cover, this like nice font, this nice image, this quote from Emily St. John Mandel. I know, our Lord and Savior, yes, Emily St. John Mandel. Exactly. She, if she endorses it, how bad can it be? It, yeah, I mean, you've got... All the things I like. You've got the self-destructive female protagonist with, like, a tragic past. You've got this, like, motley crew of sailors, which includes, like, a French female black mechanic, an Australian chef, a poetry-spouting newfie. You've got this, like, kind of dystopian future, this elegiac quality. So it really, like, it just ticks all my boxes, and I, I did really enjoy it. 
I mean, my criticism of it is that it's pretty heavy-handed. A lot of drama, maybe verging on melodrama, things that I was like, oh, come on. But in general, like, these are, these are exactly the kind of books I like to read. And I, I liked this one a lot. You know, the thing is, it ticks all of my boxes, too. Because I like uh, apocalyptic stuff, post-apocalyptic particularly, but I don't mind the slow build-up to it. In fact, I think there's not enough fiction that I've read that's kind of the slow build-up to the eventual destruction of the world. I like characters with deep flaws. Um, I like depressed characters. I expected to really like this book because it ticked off all those boxes. But it disappointed me so badly. <laughs> and I kept waiting for... You know, I've read books before where I'm not enjoying it, not enjoying it, and then they make up for it at the end and make the whole thing worthwhile. Didn't happen. Mm. I was so disappointed in every aspect of the book. And we'll we'll talk more about it yet, okay. but uh, how did you find it, well, Trevor? My impression, without I didn't realize until I heard Toby give the author's biography that she had written 12 books before. I, I was thinking of this as almost like her debut book. So to me, I felt like Charlotte McConaughey had like a lot to say and she just sort of seemed to me threw everything at the wall just to see what would stick and it kind of reminded me of that old joke about the restaurant that had terrible food and then the other person says yeah and the portions are too small so it was <laughs> like I didn't care for it and there were I felt like it was, it was underwritten a lot of the characters were so it's at the same time I wanted to like it I'm kind of with you Dennis I thought the ending was completely asinine if I can you know spoilers like the like who picks her up out of jail the second time. I'm like, uh, the father character is about as well-written as uh, Finnegan the donkey, who uh, I, wa I wanted to... I mean, that was a scene that should have really hit you. And then I had to actually flip back and see whether, like, was Finnegan the donkey introduced earlier? Like, are, are we supposed to feel for Finnegan when he gets shot by the grandma? No. He's, like, he's mentioned, like, a page before. So I just felt like that little scenario could have been, I don't know, expanded. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I felt for the donkey. I felt for him, too. But I could have felt more for him, I think, if... Uh, if you'd had any idea that she cared about a donkey? <laughs> if I even knew she had a donkey till the thing was shot. Because there was, like, a line about, oh, yeah, you know, we have these fences here. But, you know, Finnegan, that's what we have Finnegan for. I'm thinking, well, who's Finnegan? Like, a farmhand? <laughs> like, I didn't know till he was shot that he was an animal. Yeah. That's probably me because I maybe wasn't reading I closely. Think, I think that's I, deliberate. Well, <sighs> and, and that's, I think, to the heart of what I uh, struggled with with this book, what I didn't like. She mentions Finnegan. <laughs> and you know it's a ranch, right? So you're thinking dog? Okay. Kind of typical. But do donkeys are used in these scenarios because they're very fierce defenders. Donkeys? But, really? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. There, there are a lot of animals that are used for herding that are not the traditional like dog uh, scenario and uh, and donkeys work out really well because they do not take crap from wolves. <laughs> a wolf versus a donkey, bet on the donkey. Like it, It's going to mess up that wolf. But she hid that bit so she could bring it out later. And she did that throughout the novel. She kept hiding really obvious, important stuff through the most... What one review I read is called the most boring, unreliable narrator in literature. She just kept hiding stuff for no good reason from the reader specifically. 
Yeah, but I didn't mind that because that was part of, I think, the whole plan was to kind of like hide the ball from us. And you knew, like, some bad stuff happened. Like, I mean, maybe she wasn't a serial killer, but she was a serial manslaughterer. I mean, everywhere she went, people died. We just had to know, you know, And but I think that was part of the dramatic intent. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. I, I think it was done poorly. Mm. Like, okay, I was pretty sure Niall was dead in the first quarter of the book. But just because of the painfully tedious way she kept talking about how she had these letters and she never sent them. I was like, oh, it's because there's no one to send them to. <laughs> Niall's not around. She's talking in her head all the time and that's what she does. Okay. There were so many dropped threads everywhere. Like she stabs that protester who appeared to be about to sexually assault her. Nothing else comes out of that. I'm uh, really worried about Leah. I really yeah. needed closure on that. Yeah, Le- Leah yeah. cuts your skull is she dead? I don't know. Even in that little afterward part, there's no mention. She mentions that the crew of the Sagani knows she's getting out of prison. She doesn't mention anyone aside from Ennis and Anik. What happened? You know, there are so many points in this book where something is brought up very briefly. It seems like it should be significant, but you never hear about it again. And it's the whole book. A thread, it could be developed, it could tie into something, but it doesn't. It's just random stuff. It's her... Ah. Sorry, I, I get a little frustrated because it's so vague. One of the tags I saw in this book when I was looking at it was science fiction. And I thought, oh, this is good. Science fiction about the future, ecological collapse. We're going to see a bit of what that future looks like. No, you don't see anything aside from, you know, there's some people protesting. You know that the government's finally stopped commercial fishery way after it's too late because they ran out of fish and, they, and no one can find anything anymore anyway. And that there's some conservation efforts. Okay. But isn't there more happening in this world? What's going on? How are people living? Shouldn't this be really significant in a lot of people's lives? The novel you know, doesn't care. It's only but about- I can forgive that part of it because yeah. it is written in Franny's voice. Yeah. And she is the main character. And yeah, I think she's a little selfish and self-centered and flawed, as you described her. So maybe she is only thinking of the things that are right in front and center, the things that are important to her. As we find out towards the end, the real reason for her journey south is to fulfill Niall's request to have his ashes scattered with the turns and stuff. And so, yeah, but I, I know it, it, it's not a comprehensive look at the future, which some science fiction books will try to do a lot of world building. But it's, I don't, yeah, like it's not, I, that's not the goal of the book. Yeah. Like that didn't bug me. I did re- read reviews where people were very fixated on like, how are they even sailing? What are water levels like? You know, is the, hmm. what's the water temperature? What's the world like? If there's no animals, like surely this has had huge ecological impacts. And yeah, but but it didn't matter to me. I was just happy to go along with this world in which there are no animals and, and I didn't need convincing. Speaking of uh, water temperatures, the water must have been way warmer than it is now because there are a lot of people that spent a considerable amount of time in like polar waters with like little or no effect. Yeah, she would not have been able to just walk into the water off the coast of Antarctica and then walk back out and was was fine. Right. Or the whole, hey, let's uh, steal all this water from this other <laughs> yeah. ship and I'm just going to swim it over here. I mean, there are certain things that seemed like physically impossible to the point where, again, that our old uh, frenemy, the unreliable narrator is like, is, is this really? Does this really happen? Or is this in her way of dealing with she's telling the story in her own way, just like she told the story about her mom. Her mom left her. She convinced herself that until she was shown the truth or helped to see the truth. So, yeah, there are a few things 
But maybe the water temperatures were warmer then. I don't know. Or, or not then. Then? How do you refer to the future? <laughs> the future? <laughs> uh, at the time of the book. I don't know. At the time of the book. <laughs> the water will be warmer because all the fish are gone. But there's still ice. Yeah, there's still ice. Yeah. Anyway, you know what? I mean, this, you know, this wasn't, this isn't nonfiction. No, no. And, and that's not my only thing with the book. I mean, it's supposed to be this intimate, personal narrative, uh, her grief. It could be really about generational trauma, considering all the things that happened in her past. But there's the other thing. Nobody's behavior in this book makes any sense. <laughs> These people are all so badly damaged that they all make the worst possible decisions all at the same time. Like, Niall marries her instantly <laughs> after she shows the slightest bit of interest in him, knowing nothing about her, and then seems a little befuddled that he doesn't know anything about her and she's really, really uh, damaged herself. I think it's almost worse than that because he kind of like, my impression was that he kind of studied her from afar, mm -hmm. uh, like as if she were uh, a specimen, like he says yeah. his birds and kind of made up his decision is like, yep, she's the one, uh, which is even weirder. I mean, it's bad enough that he married her on the spot without knowing her, but it's also kind of creepy that he was like sort of stalking her. Yeah, nothing was healthy about that interaction, although it's made to be, oh, this it's an epic love story. And it's like, well, okay, I understand accepting people as they are. And I have a lot of people that I love that have big flaws, and uh, I love them dearly despite them. But there's usually some other basis for it, aside from, yeah, I went to your lecture, and you were a pretty charismatic speaker, and now let's... Margaret, but I'm going to run away the language from you. of love. <laughs> yeah, and then the whole crew of the Sagani, like... She convinced them to do this ridiculous journey. The one bird dies in the first storm. They decide to keep going after she, you know, stabs a guy on the shore. And they just all like, let's get in the boat and go. Yeah. And, you know, as yeah. long as Why we're in the boat. Why did they all flee yeah. after she stabbed that guy? Yeah, but who among us hasn't killed somebody <laughs> and then got in the getaway Maybe. car? And just said, go, go, go. Maybe well, and there's another. That was the only rational thing that made sense. <laughs> Well, and there's another th thing that bugged me, too. Like, the, the protester walks up to her and uses the name that was on her passport. And she's like, how did you get that name? And it's never mentioned again. It's like, okay, there's there's stuff happening here, and you're just dropping it. Like, uh, the okay, maybe you just can't think of this term, uh, book in terms of having a plot, because the plot is so forced at every step of the way. Because I can't see how half of that crew would have gone along with that. And I am shocked that Basil was the only one who made an effort to leave. You know, you're saying that you know she had to convince the crew. She didn't really. She just had to convince Ennis because they yeah. were very loyal to him. And, and they were looking for that catch. You know, they were. That's the their whole. Catch. Yeah, their whole yeah. motivation as fisher people. And so when she was like, well, follow the birds, the birds will lead us to the catch. Like, I, I buy it that they would be like, yeah, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you're a commercial fisher person whose livelihood depends on the fish. Yes. And then in a bar, <laughs> this woman you've never met before spins you this story about how you can follow a bunch of birds with her computer and they will lead you to fish. Because there's definitely fish out there, and she's definitely a bird scientist. And you know this because they always show up in bars in Greenland. I buy it, 100%. And mean, they're all just like, you know what, we're not sure about this, but Well, she tried to save. Heck? Was it Enos who went into the water? I mean, that, that gives her some cred. Yeah, another example of 
jumping into icy cold water yeah. with very limited uh, damage. Ennis. Sorry, Ennis. Yeah, and also Ennis just, you know what, I'm going to dive underwater in freezing cold water and just stay under here for like five, ten minutes. Or so. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole... I'm a person with destructive tendencies narrative. It, it's She's not the only one. It's like every person in the book has these incredibly destructive tendencies. Of course, the whole planet does because there's no animals left. I don't, it, it trips a whole bunch of things for me. Just There's so many things that don't make any sense. The behavior of the characters, the background. I don't know. It all takes me out of a book. Speaking of uh, epic love stories that give us funny feelings, did you guys like the love in the time of cholera reference at one point? Where <laughs> I they, saw that. Yeah, I, I, I kind of smiled. I know oh, that's perfect. I talk about just going back and forth without ever coming to port. <laughs> like, yeah, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I have been trashing it now. So um, convince me of the good parts. I. I thought it was really beautiful and really unique. And I I loved the setting. It was really vivid in my mind. I'm just a sucker for these flawed characters. And yeah, it just, it did it for me. Okay. Yeah. And I, uh, there's problems with it. Like I made a list of Franny's tragedies and you're like, hold, like, <laughs> it's so much. Yeah. It's so much. And I agree. I think it was you who were saying, Trevor, who was saying, like, she just threw everything at it. But it touched me. I found it very touching. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we uh, we just finished last month talking about the... Uh, bluest Eye. The Bluest Eye, yeah. And that also had characters who had a lot of tragedy heaped upon them. But I found that one much more realistic and more... I don't know, it drew me in more. And this one, I just felt there were so many things that kept throwing me off. And the dialogue was another one. It didn't feel like anyone was talking like anyone would talk. Ennis's whole love thing, like constantly, how you doing, love, you know, as the American character, just... He's also a sailor. Like, yeah, that's yeah. the only thing I could think of. Or if we're far enough in the future where colloquialisms have just transferred continent, maybe something like that. But there's nothing to back that up aside from wishful thinking or... Like, and that's the thing. Nothing explains a lot of the background you're left to imagine it entirely yourself, which, okay, fine, but I do expect the author to do a little work to kind of create a little bit of a world for me so that I can connect with the character. And I never felt connected to Franny, even being in her head. And I think it was, again, because of the constant, we're shifting to the past, to the future, and she's hiding so much the whole time that it's not until the very end you finally get kind of a sense of what's happened in her life. But at that point, too, like... Okay, the whole reason she's making this ridiculous journey and she's convinced all these people to come along and maybe kill two of them in the process. And it's because Niall, in his last will and testament, wrote he wanted to have his ashes scattered where the turns ended up. I think she cares. What kind of a thing do you put like that in your... (laughs) Who does that to their loved ones to put this ridiculous quest in your will? Well, one, she could have just gone to Chile and then like taken a boat to Antarctica, which would have been a lot easier. But two, I think it's more than just the ashes. Like, I think she she cares about the turns. She wants to see if they end up there. Like, it's not just about. No, but but she wouldn't have done that if that if she hadn't come across that passage in the will. You think so? It was very explicit. She said, uh, you know, she read that and then instantly she's like, I can do this. Because now she she gave herself a purpose. Her purpose was going to be to go do this. But who does that to your loved ones in your will to make this ridiculous, impossible thing for anyone to do and just put it in there? 
so that your severely emotionally damaged wife is not going to jump in on it. But that that's her whole thing. That's what she does. She's a wanderer. She she's like the turn. She goes with the flow. Like yeah, I feel she, like this is this is perfect for her. Like Niall knew that this journey was just what she needed. Did she need to kill people? <laughs> <laughs> that part no. I mean, she's responsible for her possibly four deaths. I mean those Maybe deaths more. happened in her vicinity. We can't well, except for the one that she people died around her Are people we, died yeah. directly well, well and like the thing is we don't know yeah. yeah there was but the, then there's, there's the other thing okay yeah. Niall you know your wife is emotionally fragile you bring up a really emotionally taxing comment when you've both been drinking and she's driving yeah and as I'm reading that passage I think why are you talking to her about this while you're driving? I thought that was a dick move. It, it was <laughs> but it, it's, so stupid. Isn't this the, also the moment when she's like, oh, he understands me? Like, it's it's a beautiful moment. And then she sees the owl. She's terrified, though. She's like, I'm like a bird yeah. with the cage open. And then she was like, what am I going to do now? I'm going to crash this car. <laughs> well, the owl. She sees the owl. She sees the owl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's... It's so forced. I, it, I really think she's the type of person who would gladly undergo this journey. Like, I don't think she needed Niall's death and ashes to undertake this. And I feel like he, maybe he knew that. Then it's even lamer, though. <laughs> then it's even lamer. Why? Because she just, she ended up upending a whole ship's life in no. uh, possibly killing two more people. But it's not like that was her intention. No, it's, no her intention was to commit suicide after she yeah. got there. It, but yeah. to be fair, that ship was a really doing much anyway right like it was it was well no it would have been impounded they would have had to gone on with their lives which they had to do anyway after they finished being arrested and being but, repatriated but the crew was all miserable whenever they were on land like yeah. the only time they seemed to feel like they had a purpose was when they were on that uh, on that ship and that moment when they're on the ship and all the arctic turns come aboard like that was so and they all like oh, bonded all, yeah, with the birds all, yeah, like they ended up them. really yeah. caring about it yeah I think I agree with Toby. I, I don't think I think she did genuinely feel for the the turn. She was like one of those what do they call them citizen scientists. Where I mean, at the beginning you think you know she's actually doing this for university, and they realize afterwards no, she, she you know she she stole these bands not stole took them from her dead husband. But yeah, I, I do agree that her whole DNA was to just keep going, keep going, leaving, leaving, and then wandering. Uh, and so maybe this this gave her the turn trip. <laughs> was her way of being able to focus all this sort of like vague urge to move again. And it got me kind of thinking like, you know, the whole theme of the book maybe is when the going gets rough, people avoid the issues and, and run away. Everyone was running from something and she ran from things all the time. And maybe, maybe, I don't know, is the idea that no, you, you got to stop running at some point and you got to deal with whatever it is that you're dealing with. Like, I mean, you see Ennis, I mean, seriously, you're going to leave your sick, dying wife and family. Well, she, didn't she tell him to yeah, leave? Yeah, but still, I mean, yeah. I, if, like, I mean, sure. Maybe she said that because she knew that she doesn't want him to see her like that's, deteriorate. That's pretty selfish though, too. And she yeah. doesn't want her kids to have anything to do with them. Yeah, yeah. That's, that was, that's weird. Again, Every single person in this made the worst decisions possible about every aspect of their life all the time. And that made it exciting. That yeah. made me keep turning the pages. Because if they were just doing the expected thing, you'd be like, okay, yeah, The only sense. reason I kept turning the pages was because we had to discuss this. <laughs> and I kept hoping that there would be something to salvage all of this. Mm -hmm. But 
When the story only works because everyone makes bad choices all the time and you, you don't know why they're doing anything like, okay, Anna says he gave up on catching the fish long ago. Then why are you still here, dude? It's now, now you've fallen for this woman and her quest, which you still don't know because she doesn't tell him ever. As far as we can tell, he has no idea why she's doing this. Although he figures it out, right? Doesn't no, he, yeah, no. doesn't he? Be doesn't like, he say something like, "I oh, you knew my husband was dead." Yeah. He goes, "Yeah, I knew that for a while." I yeah. think he says that towards the end. Yeah, he yeah, does well, say that. Well, he, he figured he was dead the same reason I did because because <laughs> it's super obvious. Because <laughs> it's super obvious, and eventually, how's she going to send letters from a boat? Come on. Uh, she's been carrying those letters for a long time. She said, "But maybe, maybe she had some of those homing <laughs> pigeons." But still, he doesn't know that she's out to spread his ashes because because that was his last like, thing in the will, like. That's never mentioned. In fact, we don't know until she pulls the ashes out of the thing that she ever had them. So Ennis never knows unless she tells him afterwards when they're waiting to be rescued for some unspecified period of time. I think Ennis recognizes in Franny part of himself. Hmm. The desperate need to do self-destructive yeah, things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like they're they're kindred spirits. Like they they are both running away from something, and I think yeah. they they understand each other. That I would agree with. Yeah. It's just, for all the explanation about her past, it still didn't really convince me that this character was at all realistic. Like, that there is a person like Franny out there somewhere that you want to root for because they're struggling against being completely overwhelmed by the world as it is. And again, that's my jam. I love characters who are overwhelmed by the world and who don't know how to cope with it and are trying to find a way through it. Like, that is my favorite type of character and my favorite type of story. And just this one did not convince me at all. I hate to be so negative about a book. <laughs> as I, I, I usually try to look for the positives, but I... And, and frankly, I found the writing pretentious, too. Like, the phrasing and stuff, she was trying to write in a literary way, and it just... I don't know. You know, we touched on the the crew of the uh, Sagani, but uh, what did you guys think about the way that they were kind of introduced with a one line, you know, this is this character, he's Korean, or <laughs> this character is a gangly uh, American black man or something. I, I'm, I'm Definitely paraphrasing. Definitely like counting off the like, you know, going to have this person of color and this person who's queer and like just getting all your representation in. Yeah. 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 We've got a diverse, scrappy little crew fighting against the odds <laughs> yeah. that everyone, including the narrator, hates for their fishing in a world where things are dying out. But she puts up with it and it ends up falling in love with all of them, except for Basil, maybe. Uh, they had kisses, though. Oh. Yes. Gross cigarette smelling kisses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and also, that's, that's the thing, you know, plucky person getting on board a, a tight knit crew of uh, rebels, you know, again. My jam, you know, yeah, yeah. long, long way to a, a small, angry planet type yeah. vibes right there. Right. Yeah. Found family. Mm-hmm. Found family. Yeah. I love that stuff. And it still wasn't enough to carry me over. I like the sort of the Han Chewy vibe between uh, Ennis and Anik. How they mm-hmm. kind of like had this mm-hmm. thing happen and they were devoted to each other. Yeah. Another huge tragedy that befell characters in this yeah. book. Yeah. yeah. 
Like, I mean, there's a lot. There, a lot. We, we could have we could have dealt with half the tragedy and still have too much tragedy. Yeah, I mean, even like all those near misses when she's aboard the ship, like any one of those would give a person PTSD. Yeah. 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 Oh, and also she sleepwalks. And during the sleepwalking, she strangles people or jumps <laughs> overboard. Yeah. Relatable. I, what? I and there's big... no... There's no delving into that at all. She doesn't take any medication for it, even though it was kind of offered to her at one point. Like, maybe you should medicate for this, because otherwise maybe you're going to hurt someone you love. Like, you nearly strangled your husband twice. Like, right. But no, not going to deal with that. Not yeah. going to mention anything about that. Or, you know, just it's just another thing slapped on to make her weird and eccentric and erratic. Un- unreliable. And, yeah. Yeah, I have a big problem with sleepwalking as a narrative device because it's just this super convenient way to make your character unreliable and to have them do things that even they're not aware they they are doing. I feel like it's often relied upon for that. She goes and releases those birds from her her mom-in-law's uh-huh. place. She oh, yeah. she wanders into that reserve. Yeah, yeah, where they could have been killed by any of the wild animals <laughs> they're trying to protect. Yeah, because yeah. she goes first, right, and Niall goes but after to kind of yeah. like... And then he's the one that falls in another frigid lake. <laughs> yes. To, to very limited effect. Yeah. Maybe people are just tougher in the future. You know? Maybe. They don't think twice about just jumping in a glacier-fed body of water. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, I don't know how, like, any time that happened to someone in this book, and then they would come out, and I'd be like, but how are you drying off and getting clothes on? Like, everything's going to freeze. And she keeps jumping in the water to rescue people. Those kids on the boat. Yeah. The Captain Ennis, when he jumps into the water. So she keeps jumping in to save people, but, like, recklessly and uh, not in a way that would normally result in success. And that's okay. The people like her because she tries to save other people's lives. Okay. That's maybe explains the little bit of an edge she got getting onto the boat, but it's still. Yeah. Uh, and, and because we've all described this as literary fiction, I kept thinking, okay, well, it's the water like, like a birth metaphor. And every time she goes in, she comes mm-hmm. out, is she reborn? And then at the end, she's going to die, but she is reborn. And I, I don't know. I, I never fully formed my thoughts on that, but I kept thinking there's a lot of going into the water and then coming out of the water. For a book that's this length, well, well it, I mean, it too is much, too much water talk. Often set on a boat, so yeah. <laughs> uh, that part wasn't throwing me. But it, if we start going down the road where the things that make no sense are just all symbolic, okay, then this is an entirely different book than it appears to be because nothing makes sense. So it must all be symbolic. Like when she's a child and the and the crows uh, befriend her oh, yes. and bring her treats. And later that scientist is like, no, they didn't. Right. What up? And also, like, (laughs) that's something we know now that crows do. How is a a conservation scientist completely unaware that crows will do this? (laughs) To be fair, she also wanted turns to eat grass. (laughs) But don't they end up eating grass? Like, there's some success with a bird. Yeah, some of them. The smart ones. Or the dumb ones. (gasps) It's true. The adaptive ones. Adaptive, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think it, okay. So you could maybe take that also as a, a reflection on being true to one's nature, or can you change your nature? I guess maybe that's one of the questions of the book because they're trying to change the nature of some of the turns so that they don't do this ridiculously long migration, which they may not survive, and they find a way for them to adapt. Niall kind of argues that no, you can't change their nature. They're just going to do what they do, even if it ends up in their death. And you can't change a person or an animal's nature. And even if you did, it's wrong. 
Yeah, and it's wrong to try. But then did Franny change her nature at the end there where she heard the voice while she was floating in the water and should have been dead already but didn't and survived and then goes back to prison, you know, and uh, pays the price for what she did in the past and comes out with a sense of optimism. Wait, did she just change her nature? And suddenly forgiving the man she's never met before, but is is her father uh, who just shows up and he instantly... She instantly recognizes him, and they're like, hey, let's go to Scotland. <laughs> I was imagining there's like a shadow book that's all from like the dad's perspective where he's always just missing her. Where like, <laughs> like he shows up to Greenland like the day after the Sagani set sail, and then he's like in St. John's right when the guy gets murdered. And then like he's just like, you know, he's just almost, just not quite until the very end. Yeah, that would be like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, <laughs> but, for, uh, yeah. but for this book. Yeah. I might read that one. <laughs> or The Fifth Business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess we could wrap up or go with final comments. Uh, what's your final comment on the book? I just wanted to mention that I had to, of course, look up Arctic terns, and I was very relieved to know that they are not in danger of extinction at all. So they are of least concern. So That's good. Yeah, which yeah. is probably the only reason they were around in the book until that point. Yes, yes, yeah. perhaps. But lots of, lots of Arctic terns out there. No need to worry. I saw some pictures. They are lovely. Yeah, they are. Beautiful birds. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, I was uh, just say I could see why uh, Emily St. John Mandel put a blurb for this book, because I could see this really would be her jam. It's sort of, you know, near future dystopia. And a lot of Emily St. John Mandel's books deal, weirdly enough, with like shipping routes and uh, boats mm. and and things. And so I definitely can see where she's coming from. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. I think I've said everything I need to say about the book. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't have final thoughts. I wanted to like this book. I really thought I would just based on the premise and on a bunch of elements of it. And it just did not work for me. But the reviews are generally positive online. So most people who read it and write a review about it seem to like it. And, I liked it. And Toby likes it. Mm -hmm. And Toby's got great taste. So, you. you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we don't always have to agree. No, no. No, different books for different people. Mm -hmm. But if you're like me and uh, inconsistencies in the plot or characters or dialogue or motivation <laughs> or things like that bother you and throw you out of a story, maybe it's not the best. Uh, <laughs> but if those things aren't a major concern for a novel like this, then, you know, go for it. You just go into it. You just don't don't think too hard. <laughs> Dive in like you're diving in to save the life of a person you've never met before in our, in water that's cold enough to kill you. Just yeah, exactly. Right in. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I'd go see the movie. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. You know what? Podcast field trip. Oh, yeah. Mm. My, my living room in January. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Claire Foy? Um, if there are lovely we'll buy you treats and stuff. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. That would be so fun. I'm in. <laughs> I would be curious how they translated some of it. Cumberbatch playing a double role of Nile and Captain Annis. I'm going to put money on right now him being Annis. Oh, I'm going to go the other way. Okay. I have no idea, honestly. <laughs> he could go either way. And he'll be good in whichever role he plays. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? So, who's got a recommendation? Um, I will go. So I have a book that, like Migrations, is also literary fiction, also by a white woman, and also grapples with uh, climate change, but in a much funnier way. It's the book Weather by Jenny Ophel. 
Hmm. Awful? I don't know if it's awful or awful, but awful seems weird to say. So Weather is about a woman named Lizzie who is a librarian. So that's kind of fun. And she also answers fan mail for this end of the world type podcast. And through the letter, she gets interested in something called disaster psychology, which then starts to interfere with other parts of her life. But there's there's a lot going on in this book, and it's very, very short. So she packs a lot in. There's like she has a husband who's a video game designer. She has a young son. She has a brother who has a drug addiction. So a synopsis really doesn't do it justice. But if you've never read anything by Jenny Ophel, she writes in these like short paragraphs of kind of like pro that are like prosy. And it sounds like it could be pretentious and difficult, but it's not. She does it really, really well. And she really like packs a lot into these little fragments um, and really gets inside her character's heads and captures a lot of stuff, despite, again, this being a very short book. When I think of this book, the word I think best describes it is acerbic. It has that like really sharp observational wit. So that is that is my recommendation, whether by Jenny Ophel or Awful. Hmm. This is the podcast of alternate pronunciation. <laughs> my book, uh, I, I sort of leaned into the environmental uh, fiction. That is a genre. So if you enjoyed the, you know, nature on the brink aspect of migrations, you may enjoy the History of Bees by Maya Lund, who is a Norwegian children's author, but this is her first adult novel. And I'm just going to read a description of it from Booklist, just because it's probably the easiest to do. It, there are three separate narrators and three separate time periods. So the first one is William Savage. He's a depressed English naturalist with a large family who is reinvigorated when he begins to research bees in 1852. The second one, there's George, who is a third-generation Ohio beekeeper in 2007, who is struggling to convince his son to continue the family business. And then finally, we jump ahead to China in 2098, where bees are extinct, and inevitably humanity is nearly extinct. So then there's Dao, who does grueling work as a human pollinator and longs for a new life for her family. In short chapters, the text cycles through each narrative at a rapid pace. While it structurally resembles Ali Smith's How to Be Both, it echoes Hillary St. John Mandel's Station Eleven. While Mandel's text celebrates human technological innovation, Lund's focus is on the delicate symbiotic relationship of humanity and the natural world. This is an unusual, extensively researched and gripping tale that tackles a pressing subject with compassion, nuance, and insight. So, The History of Bees by Maya Lund. So I wasn't sure where to go with this, so I have three options here. If you enjoyed the dark inevitability of a dying planet, but would like more humor, I'm going to recommend Don't Look Up on Netflix. It's a movie, not a book, and it's about a comet coming to destroy us all, but it's clearly meant as a look at how we're dealing with climate change. Although it came out during the pandemic, so it was also a good analogy for the pandemic response. But uh, I thought that one got terrible reviews. I loved it. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. It's one of those things I think was divisive in the reviews. Some people, I mean, some people really didn't like the fact that it appeared to be a shot at pandemic response. Uh, what's her name? I forget the actress's name. Uh, Meryl Streep played a character who was very clearly a Trump clone. And so I think a lot of people who were Trump supporters would have definitely hated that. But it had Leo DiCaprio in it, and I'm not a big Leo fan, but uh, this was my favorite role of his. Hmm. So anyway, if you prefer a book, you might like The Children of Men by P.D. James. Instead of animals dying off due to climate change, habitat destruction, and overfishing, it's people dying off due to mass infertility. 
I have not read this one myself, but I did see the movie, although apparently it varies quite a bit from the novel. But they're both widely considered excellent. And finally, if you like your protagonist to have a wandering spirit, but you're looking for some hope and relief about human-driven climate change, I heartily endorse reading A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers, which we've mentioned a couple of times recently. Because in that one, humanity actually managed to turn away from complete climate destruction and adapted to live more in harmony with nature. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panelists chat about words that caught our imagination recently. Oh, you're looking at me. Okay. <laughs> well, um, you, you, were, you were dancing a little bit. Yeah, well, you? I have that song in my head all the time when you say that. So, <laughs> um, so my, I have two words that are related this month. And those words are port and starboard, which are inspired by this book. They're nautical terms for uh, watercraft, also aircraft, referring to the sides of the vessels. So when you're on a boat and you're facing the front, port is your left and starboard is your right. And unlike the terms right and left, which change depending on which way you're facing, port and starboard are fixed. So they're unambiguous and independent of a sailor's orientation. So these words come from a long time ago before ships had rudders and they were steered with a steering oar, which was on the right-hand side of the ship because most sailors or most people are right-handed. And so sailors began calling the right-hand side of the ship the steering side or the steerboard, uh, which combines the old English steer, meaning steer, and board being side of a boat. And I guess over time, steerboard just evolved into starboard. And since the steering oar was on the right side of the boat, it would tie up at the wharf on the other side, which became known as larboard or the loading side. But over time, larboard and starboard were too similar sounding. And I imagine there was some probably nautical accidents um, <laughs> with the mix up of larboard and starboard. So larboard was replaced by port as again, that's the side that faced the port. So hence port and starboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My word uh, this this month comes directly from the novel. There's a point where Captain Ennis is talking with Franny and talks about a, a, something called Point Nemo. And mm. I, they talked about it a little bit being the most uninhabited spot on Earth. So I thought, well, is this a real thing? Because uh, And apparently, yes, it is. It was discovered very recently, though, in 1992 by a Croatian-Canadian survey engineer, uh, again, the podcast for pronouncing Fiorve uh, Lutatella. And Fiorve, if you're listening, I apologize for that uh, pronunciation of your first name. What the point of inaccessibility is, is it's the place in the ocean that's furthest away from any land. So they calculated whatever is point is kind of like how Winnipeg is the furthest place from any ocean. Not really, but it kind of feels like that. It's the, it's the reverse. So a couple of fun facts about Point Nemo is that sometimes... The closest humans to it are the uh, astronauts on the ISS that are <laughs> over top because they're about uh, 258 miles above, which that's is, it? uh, yeah, yeah. Huh. And so, uh, that's, that's a lot closer than the most inhabited islands, which are about, uh, 2,200 miles away. So it gives you kind of a weird perspective of human habitation when you have to go up to see people. And uh, there's no actual life in this area. It's not just one island. It's a group of small islands, but nothing lives there, human or otherwise, because of the way that the ocean circulates around there. It keeps pushing all the nutrients away. So there's nothing for any animals to eat. Oh, so it's land? 
Yeah. Queen Nemo? Yeah, I mean, oh. it's, I mean, there are, there are little rocks around there. Like, I mean, there's, like, there's, there's small islands that are uninhabited. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought yeah. it was like a, like a, just a point in the water. Well, it is also that. Oh. <laughs> it, it can't be both, Trevor. <laughs> I clearly didn't do enough research on Point Nemo. I wasn't expecting questions. I, I have heard about this point before. There aren't islands. It's it's literally the it's a it's water, and so you can't see it. Uh, well, holy Ooh. fuck! Because <laughs> if there were islands, then it wouldn't be the point in the ocean farthest from any land. Uh, Point Nemo is the most remote place on Earth, but yeah, you're right. Look at this. I should have read my notes a little closer. Uh, it's also this is the part I wanted to point out. Not only is it the middle of nowhere, it's a place where NASA intentionally ditches their satellites and their space bits. So space stations and other things, they try to aim them to land as close to Point Nemo as possible so they cause the least amount of damage. As what about to- the fish? There's, There's no, no fish. fish. There's no nutrients in the water there. There's no nutrients in the water Dennis, there? Dennis, he was just saying. Oh, they, I thought, I thought the you knew ocean, independently. The Don't. ocean currents were yep. um, pushing away the nutrients, so nothing lives there because there's no nutrients around there. Yeah. Surely there's something in that water. Nothing. Let me read my uh, fun fact number four. Point Nemo, a lifeless spot. It is clear that there's no human life anywhere near Point Nemo. Well, there doesn't appear to be much sea life either. Point Nemo's location falls at the center of the Southern Pacific Gyre, a rotating ocean current that keeps nutrient-rich waters away from the area. So, yeah, and it doesn't get any nutrient-rich runoff from the continents because it's not close to any of them. So marine creatures who would normally settle near there just have no reason to go there. So they only found bacteria and small crabs in the volcanic events like, of the seafloor. Surely there. it's very, very deep there, and they just haven't gone deep enough. You know, Toby, I wish I knew how deep it was. Uh, <laughs> I didn't ask you. I didn't, I didn't, ask didn't you. Uh, expect so many questions. But <laughs> final point I wanted to make was that apparently, this is totally coincidence, but remember our friend H.P. Lovecraft and mm-hmm. his big, scary monster, Kalulu? Apparently in the Lovecraft books... If you look at the, he, it basically it's Point Nemo where, where it lives under the water hmm. uninterrupted until humans, you know, piss it off or whatever it's supposed to do. Yeah. Considering you wrote nearly a hundred years before they determined where Point Nemo was, that's yeah. pretty prescient. I know. I know. Yeah. So anyway. Point Nemo. I, yes. I uh, hope you enjoy this <laughs> heavily edited portion. <laughs> How about you, Dad? Um, what you got. You're going to put the whole thing in there. <laughs> A couple of times during the novel, Ennis, who's the captain of the Sagani, is referred to as Skipper or Skip. So that's my nerd word. The Skipper is the captain or master of a boat, particularly a fishing or small trading or pleasure boat. It's also can generally be used to refer to someone in charge of something. According to Merriam-Webster, it's derived from the Middle Dutch Shipper, which being Dutch Shipper is S-C-H, and Ship is Ship, uh, which is akin to Old English skip which is like ship but with a c instead of an h so basically in skipper you turn the h into a k and then you've got skipper and i like this word because it sounds happy uh, possibly because i'm imagining the captain of the ship skipping around the deck like he's playing hopscotch and it also brings to mind skipper from gilligan's island and that was always fun so skipper i also think of peanut butter skippy yeah. oh yeah also a good association yeah very positive it's a good word Uh, So unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss A Grandmother Begins the Story by Michelle Porter. 
Five generations of Métis women argue, dance, struggle, laugh, love, and tell the stories that will sing their family and perhaps the land itself into healing in this brilliant, original debut novel. Carter is a young mother, recently separated. She's curious, angry, and on a quest to find out what the heritage she only learned of in her teens truly means. Allie is trying to make up for the lost years with her firstborn and to protect Carter from the hurt she herself suffered from her own mother. Lucy wants the granddaughter she's never met to help her join her ancestors in the afterlife. Genevieve is determined to conquer her demons before the fire inside burns her up, with the help of the sister she lost but has never been without. And Mamey in the afterlife knows that all their stories began with her. She must find a way to loose herself from the last threads that keep her tethered to the living, just as they must find their own paths forward. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read. You know what? The closest islands, <laughs> Point Nemo, are over uh, 1,600 miles away from the point. 1,600 so miles. That's okay. a huge amount. That is. A, it is. Yeah. So astronauts are only two, well, the space station is only 230 miles above Earth? If the world is an orange. Yeah. The astronauts and like the space station, like orbit. Yeah. Is less thick than the peel of the orange. It's not very far up until the atmosphere starts disappearing. Yeah. Um, uh, And yeah, we have no concept of that because it's straight up. (laughs) Yeah, I guess like I think of them as being kind of like close to the moon, but Mm. I... Nowhere near. Yeah, I guess they're not close to the moon. I mean, the moon is even pretty close in terms of, you know, our solar system. Um, It, It is incredibly hard for humans to visualize and conceptualize the distances oh it stresses me out when i it's when just, you try oof. to yeah I, I, it's I like trying very... to imagine time like you know how long it's been since there were dinosaurs or something oh it's terrifying it's yeah absolutely or, terrifying or like the size of the sun hmm. stop to think about the size of the sun yeah and or then like, it's like they, a small sun in this <laughs> in the realm of suns or, or don't they say like yeah i remember from school like uh, the planet jupiter it has that red spot yeah and it could fit three earths yeah just in the red spot yeah jupiter's, jupiter's giant but the sun yeah. is bigger than jupiter it is. Oh, yeah how, how can that be